Welcome to Damn Good Movie Memories with your host, Ryan Davis. This podcast is the cure for your long commute and super boring work day. I fooled that head shrinker. I'm gonna fool that bunch of corn cobbers on the jury. You're a liar! You're a lousy, stinking liar! Oh, could, could Mark have a little in that ashtray, maybe? He loves beer. You want a beer for the dog? Mm-hmm. There we are. He'll go to sleep now. Oh, it's common knowledge in Thunder Bay you were living with Quill? Not true. Was what, Miss Pallant? Barney Quill was what, Miss Pallant? Until this trial's over, you're going to be a meek little housewife with horn-rimmed spectacles. And you're going to stay away from men and juke joints and booze and pinball machines. And you're going to wear a skirt and low-heeled shoes. And you're going to wear a girdle. And especially a girdle. Why wouldn't I be legally justified in killing the man who raped my wife? Time out. Now, if you'd caught him in the act, the shooting might have been justified, but you didn't catch him in the act. Well, uh, doesn't a woman sort of instinctively know when a fellow's on the mate? Oh, sure. But that's only usual with me. With men, I mean. Almost all men, ever since I was a kid. Did you cry out? Did you scream? Is that because you know that Barney Quill bathed and changed and cooled off after he raped and beat hell out of this poor woman? Your Honor, everybody in this court is being tried except Frederick Mannion. I must protect Now listen, this is a cross-examination murder case. It's not a high school debate. What are you and Dancer trying to do? Railroad this soldier into the clink? Hey there, it's Brian Davis, and for this week's episode, we're going to cover Anatomy of a Murder from 1959. Now, the studio was Columbia Pictures. The release date was July 1st, 1959. The running time? Yeah, it's long. It's 160 minutes. It's in black and white, but this movie really doesn't feel long, and we'll get into that. The budget? I have no idea, because I couldn't find it, but the box office was... Well, it's tough because you get conflicting reports. It was either $12 million or $15 million, which would basically be the equivalent of $234 million today. It was the second highest grossing film of 1959. The number one grossing film was Ben-Hur. Now, Leonard Maltin from his amazing classic movie guide rates it four out of four stars. He says it's a long, exciting courtroom drama, daring when released, but it's considered tamer now. Sterling cast Arthur O'Connell as a drunken lawyer inspired by Jimmy Stewart and George C. Scott as a prosecuting attorney, Joseph Wells as a judge. Wells was actually the famous 
uh, Army versus McCarthy hearings lawyer who later became a judge in real life. Stuart Towers overall is a witty, easygoing, but cagey defense lawyer. Now, Rotten Tomatoes gives it 100% fresh. That's right, out of 42 reviews. The critics' consensus is it's one of cinema's greatest courtroom dramas. Anatomy of a Murder is tense, thought-provoking, and brilliantly acted, with great performances from Jimmy Stewart and George C. Scott. So I first saw this, I think it was in my late 20s, after buying two books about classic films. Both were in the bargain section at Barnes & Noble. That's always a great <laughs> section to go into. Uh, one was written by Brendan Fraser's ex-wife Afton uh, called Hollywood Picks the Classics. And many of the actors were featured and uh, each, uh, many of the actors that were featured, each actor kind of had a list of about five to six essential films to see from their filmography. And so uh, the other book title kind of seems a little bit flippant, but it was a terrific guide called The Complete Idiot's Guide to Classic Movies. Anatomy of Murder was featured in the crime section. So my viewing of long movies is usually reserved for a select few that I know are going to be good. However, I had a mission to pretty much watch every single movie that was listed in these two books, so all the running times were kind of thrown out the window. Even from my first viewing of this film, I was never, ever bored. So over two and a half hours really does fly by, and that is definitely due to the brilliance of Jimmy Stewart and the compelling story and remaining cast of characters. I put this number three on my list of favorite courtroom movies, but it very easily could have been number one. And I have a feeling that legal experts would greatly enjoy this film, but it's not so technical that non-legal uh, people could, couldn't enjoy this film, like myself. The film is actually based on a novel written by Robert Traver, and this was his pen name for a Michigan uh, Supreme Court justice named John D. Volker. Volker wrote the novel based on a murder trial from 1952 in which he was the defense attorney. The outcome of the case was very similar to the film's outcome, though I'm not going to share it in order not to spoil the film for those who haven't seen it, and my guess is a lot of people haven't seen this. I will say that if you enjoy this film, I highly suggest you check out what happened in the real trial. All right, so the main cast, of course, is Jimmy Stewart, James Stewart. Paul Bleeger is the character. Stewart was already a Hollywood legend at this point in his career. I mean, he was in Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, The Shop Around the Corner, The Philadelphia Story, It's a Wonderful Life, Rope, Harvey, Rear Window, The Man Who Knew Too Much, and Vertigo, just to name a few. I mean, he was in many others. Absolute legend and one of my favorite classic actors of all time. Partly because he was the everyman. You couldn't help but like him. Sort of like Gregory Peck. James Stewart kind of takes the same persona in this role as an ex-district attorney turned defense attorney. And actually, speaking of Gregory Peck, he was considered for this role. Lee Remick plays Laura Mannion, and, and Remick at this point in her career was mostly known as a TV actress, though she was excellent in A Face in the Crowd with Andy Griffith and The Long Hot Summer with Paul Newman and Joanne Woodward. They were married. Her role as Laura in Anatomy of a Murder was definitely her breakout role, and some movie fans may only know her as the mother of Damien in the original Omen from 1976. We bring up Gregory Peck again. She was also excellent co-starring with Jack Lemmon in Days of Wine and Roses. So the role of Laura was intended for Lana Turner, but Turner demanded that she wear gowns by her personal designer. And director uh, Otto Preminger said the gowns would not fit the role, and Turner turned down the role. Columbia Pictures was going to give in to Turner's demands uh, just to have a big-name star, but Preminger felt that Remick was a better choice, even though she was an unknown. And Jane Mansfield also turned down the role. 
Ben Gazzara plays Lieutenant Frederick Mannion, and like Remick, Gazzara was primarily known as a TV actor uh, before this film, and he would consistently be in films and TV shows up until his death in 2011. Now, younger fans may best know him as the terrific villain Brad Wesley in the cult classic Roadhouse with Patrick Swayze. Uh, Richard Widmark was considered for this role. Arthur O'Connell was Parnell Emmett McCarthy. Now, O'Connell mostly worked as a character actor, like in this film, in TV and films, from 1940 all the way to 1975, and he he died in 1981. Some of his best-known films uh, that he was in was uh, Picnic with William Holden, The Original Poseidon Adventure from 1972, and Bus Stop with Marilyn Monroe. His character works really well with Jimmy Stewart, and I like the bond that they have together. It's sort of like the bond between Gene Hackman and Dennis Hopper and Hoosiers. More on this later. George C. Scott plays Claude Dancer, and this definitely was the breakout role for George C. Scott, and he plays the prosecuting attorney. Uh, Scott, uh, Scott went on to have an amazing career, most notably for his role as George S. Patton in the famous biopic, Patton, and he was also uh, in The Hustler with Paul Newman and Dr. Strangeglove and many other terrific films. Eve Arden plays Maida Rutledge, and I have mentioned Arden in past episodes for her minor roles in various films. And some may know her as Principal McGee in the original Grease later in her career. However, I'm a huge old-time radio fan, as you might know, and she will forever be known as the funniest high school English teacher ever in a radio program, which is Armis Brooks from the late 40s and the early 50s. She is absolutely terrific in this film, and I wish she had a bigger role. Now, the other side actors, you have Catherine Grant, who plays Mary uh, Plant. Um, Grant does not have a huge part in this film, but it does play a vital role in various points in the plot. Uh, I won't give away who her character is because it will kind of spoil parts of the film, but Grant was actually married to Bing Crosby at the time, so there you go. Murray Hamilton plays Alphonse Paquette. Uh, This was a fun discovery because I hadn't noticed before, before watching this film again, but I knew I'd seen Hamilton before in another movie. He just looked younger. Then I realized he's the mayor of Amity Island in Jaws. He was also Mrs. Robinson's husband in The Graduate, of course, with Dustin Hoffman. In this movie, he plays a bartender. And, and though he has key scenes, um, it, it's a small role. But he does have a vital role in Anatomy of a Murder. Joseph Welch plays Judge Weaver. And as I mentioned earlier from Leonard Malton's quick review synopsis, Welch was actually a real lawyer and was famous for his role on the McCarthy hearings of the 1950s where he confronted Senator Joseph McCarthy. Welch has a famous line to McCarthy, Have you no sense of decency, sir? At long last, have you no sense of decency? And was often cited as a turning point in the farce that was known as the McCarthy hearings on communism. For his part in Anatomy of a Murder, Welch had a great quote. He actually took on the role because it looked like that was the only way I would ever get to be a judge. (laughs) Welch actually took the part on condition that his wife Agnes would be in the film and she was cast as a juror. The part of the judge was originally offered to both Spencer Tracy and Burl Ives, but I think it works better if the judge is an unknown. Alright, the director was Otto Preminger. Anatomy of a Murder would be considered his finest film and, and known for tackling he was known for tackling tough issues in his films and often dealing with censorship because of this. Prior to this film, he directed the film Noir Classic Laura in 1944, Carmen Jones with Harry Belafonte and Dorothy Danridge, and then The Man with the Golden Arm, which is about heroin addiction, starring Frank Sinatra. 
The screenplay writer was Wendell Mays. Uh, Previously, he wrote The Spirit of uh, St. Louis, which also starred James Stewart as the legendary pilot Charles Lindbergh. Mays went on to write the screenplays for classic films like the original Death Wish from 1974, Advice and Consent, In Harm's Way, Von Ryan's Express, and The Poseidon Adventure. All right, so my thoughts on the film. It's the beginning. It's a very Hitchcock-esque. as like animation in the opening credits. This makes sense, since Saul Bass designed the title poster for this film and Vertigo. The image of the body is very similar in both. The jazz score is done by the legendary Duke Ellington. Uh, Ellington appeared in the film as a brief cameo with James Stewart. Ellington went on to win three Grammys for his musical work in the film. Now, James Stewart plays Paul or Polly uh, Bleager or Beager, and uh, he was a district attorney for 10 years before being beat out for that position. Now he's a lawyer handling boring divorce cases, and he basically fish and drinks with his old lawyer buddy, Arthur O'Connell, uh, who is uh, Parnell Emmett McCarthy. And, and really, what you, you come to realize about Stewart's character is he should be better than what he's doing. You know, the story of a down-on-their-luck, once-great person is kind of a tried-and-true plot device. And there's a funny scene where Eve Arden comes in and opens up his uh, refrigerator and finds it full of fish, with the exception of a bottle full of milk. So he's kind of just like that typical bachelor who all he likes to do is fish and do a little work on the side. Morning, Mado. Oh, there it is. What? The newspaper. I thought maybe they didn't bring it. We haven't paid the bill. Did you get my note? Uh-huh. We may be in the case. I'm just reading up on it now before talking to Lieutenant Manning. Doesn't he ever go home? Oh, you mean Parnell? We were up late last night. Is that a fact? You know, I, I think maybe you better cancel all my appointments for today. What appointments? People think you've migrated into the woods. If this refrigerator gets any more fish in it, it'll swim upstream and spawn all by itself. Uh. May I have your attention for a moment, please? Yeah. I was going over your checkbook yesterday. I can't pay me my salary. What did you do with the fee for the Walker's divorce? Help salt a uranium mine or something? Uh, I bought a few bare necessities. Like a new outboard motor. I wish I could be classy with necessities. Aren't you going to have your toast? No, no, I'll, uh, I'll, uh, call you, let you know how things are going. Now, don't let him pay you off in Purple Hearts. Those professional soldiers never have a dime. I ought to know. I was married to one. All right, so Lee Remick comes in as Laura Mannion, and she hires uh, Stewart to defend her husband, Ben Gazzara, on murder charges. She mentions that Stewart comes highly recommended, though they never really explain why or how they found out about him. And so Remick has a really cute dog named Muffy, who drinks beer and immediately falls asleep. (laughs) Uh, She's wearing sunglasses because she has a huge black eye, and she calls her husband Manny, likely due to his last name of being Mannion. So Eve Arden, again, is kind of like Stewart's office manager and kind of keeps things in order since Stewart kind of forgets to do it. Arden is perfect as the wise-cracking Rutledge. Uh, and I really wish, again, she had more scenes in the film because her timing and her facial expressions often steal the scenes. Does Mannion hear you? She's been waiting quite a while. She's been through all your albums from Dixieland to Brubeck. What do you think of her? Soft. Easy. The kind men like to take advantage of, and do. Did you get any money? Huh? Money. Oh, oh no. Uh, I haven't decided to take the case yet. You know, you surprise me sometimes. Why? I've been around. 
kind of a lawyer. The music, I mean. Well, aren't lawyers supposed to like music? Well, not that kind of music. Oh, well, I guess that settles that I'm a funny kind of lawyer. Where's your home, Mrs. Mannion? I mean, where'd you go to school? Where'd you live when you were growing up? Oh, no place in particular. We sort of moved around. My father was a boomer, construction boomer, building dams mostly. You can call me Laura. Is your family still alive, Laura? No. I don't know. I have some cigarettes around here someplace. You want a cigarette? No, I wanted to offer you one. You could light it for me. Oh, yes. Yeah. That's just like your husband, isn't it? Mm-hmm. He gave me this because I like the one he had. He's like that. He gives me presents all the time. You have a happy marriage? Yes. Well, what went wrong with the first marriage? Well, what went wrong is when I went for Manny. Well, that's honest enough. Well, it was more than just that. Like I told you, I grew up on the move, and Jack, that was my first husband, Jack didn't like to move. He wouldn't even take a transfer when he had the chance. I was really bored. Manny likes to go. We're always going whenever we get the chance. We've been all over. I'm thirsty. Water or would a beer do? I think a beer would do fine. Maida, bring me a bottle of beer, will you? Are you married? No. That's nice. What do you do alone in this house if you aren't married? Well, it's a family home. No one will ask the family. There you are. Thank you. Aren't you having one? No, not right now. There you are. Oh, could, could Mark have a little in that ashtray, maybe? He loves beer. You want a beer for the dog? Mm-hmm. Well, there we are. He'll go to sleep now. Isn't he cute? Yeah. All right, so Gazar's character is Frederick Mannion. He was in the U.S. Army. He was in Korea for eight to nine years. And so now he's being held in the county jail on first-degree murder. Uh, he was told by his wife that she was raped and beaten, so he then goes and kills and uh, shoots the rapist uh, an hour after his wife tells him about the assault. He's 28 years old, married previously, and his wife left him while he was in Korea. He met Remick in Georgia four years prior, no kids, uh, Remick volunteers to take a lie detector test. Uh, he wasn't told about the results. He really doesn't seem like a great guy. He's not really likable at all, but this really doesn't change throughout the film. So it's kind of a hard person to get behind. It's one thing when it's like cut and dry. And so, of course, you feel for him because if, if anyone was told that information, you might react the same way. But he just makes it very difficult to be on his side. There's a funny scene where Stuart and uh, McCarthy <laughs> eat a hard-boiled egg and beer for lunch, like on a side cafe. It's kind of an interesting meal. So really, this is a tricky case, since it wasn't in the heat of the moment, because Gazzara waited an hour before deciding to go and confront his wife's rapist. We so had time to really think about it. Stuart, in one of his meetings with Gazzara, says there are four ways to defend murder. 
One, it wasn't murder. It was suicide or accidental. Two, the defendant, Gasara, didn't do it. Three, it's legally justified because you're protecting your home or it's self-defense. Or four, the killing was excusable. Gazara doesn't fit in the first three because he didn't catch the rapist in the act and didn't even call in the police after he found out. So, this would be construed as premeditated with vengeance. However, the potential sympathy of a jury would be with Gazara due to the raping of his wife, but he needs a legal excuse for the killing to stick in trial. Temporary insanity might work, but they need to go to a psychiatrist to validate the claim. Maybe even the military will pay for one. He would have to go to an army doctor in Detroit. Eventually, Gazara is evaluated by this Detroit army doctor, and they determine he had a, quote, irresistible impulse to kill. However, even though he may have had that irresistible impulse, did he know right or wrong? Stuart McCarthy had an ace up their sleeve as the Michigan Supreme Court did accept this irresistible impulse in 1886 as a precedent to be temporarily insane to kill. So, regardless if the person knew it was wrong to kill, it didn't matter because of that irresistible impulse. So, this is Laura's story about the rape. Uh, She went to a bar owned by Barney Quill. He's the rapist. And he played pinball. uh, She played pinball by herself after dinner when Manny went to sleep. She needed to get out of the house. Barney challenged her to a pinball match. And Laura brought her dog. Barney offered her a ride home. They kind of live in a trailer park. Stuart asked, how was she dressed? Laura says she had a blouse and skirt. There's a funny line where he said, where he asked, "What? No girdle?" <laughs> she replied that she doesn't need one, and then asked Stuart if, and then Stuart asked if if uh, if she needed one, and, and he kind of gets all flustered. <laughs> so anyway, Laura explains that the assault and rape, which happened right before they got to her place, was in the woods in the car. Uh, there's a doctor in the newspaper claims he examined her and she wasn't raped, and Laura vehemently denies this claim. She passes out and wakes up again, and he tries to rape and beat her again. She escapes and runs home, and torn clothes are given to the police, except the panties were not found. And so again, you got to keep in mind this is this is 1959. You know, talking about rape explicitly out in the open in the in film really wasn't done. You know, if it was implied, that's one thing, but to come out and say this was a big deal. I mentioned before that the the relationship between Stewart and Connell is very similar to to the movie Hoosiers with Gene Hackman and Dennis Hopper. Uh, Stewart really wants him on the case, but he needs him to be sober. And uh, Stewart charges a $3,000 fee, but Gazar is broke, but offers $150 a week until paid off. There's a good back and forth between the district attorney and Stewart uh, regarding the lie detector test. And she ended up passing. Here's the thing. Laura's afraid of Gazara, and he's very jealous. Uh, she kind of wanted to leave him. And she's, even then, during the this case, she's very flirtatious with Stuart. She's lonely, and she has mixed emotions about Manny actually getting off. There's some great investigative tactics going on here. Arden uh, goes to a salon and gets all the gossip from the women. Uh, O'Connell goes and drinks with other soldiers to find out more about Manny. Uh, there's a great scene where Stuart actually is playing piano with Duke Ellington, who was named Pie Eye. Uh, Remick really comes off as a party girl. So on the surface, there's nothing wrong, but it's bad for public perception, especially with a trial that's going to be out in the open. 
Uh, Stuart really has to lay down the law with her after confronting her in a bar where she's drinking and dancing a lot. She dresses very conservatively going forward and in court. Hi, Polly. Fellas, this is Manny's lawyer. Hi, how are you? Sit down, won't you? I'm sorry, I can't right now. Mrs. Mannion, may I talk to you for a moment outside? Mrs. Mannion, I thought we dropped the formalities a long time ago. I think maybe we'd better pick them up again. This is important. All right, I'll go with you. All right, come on. Hey! You're coming back, aren't you? Sure, what do you think? See you later, Pia. Okay. Did you get my phone message? Yeah, but I got busy. Well, I haven't been to see your husband. Oh, no, I don't see why I have to see him every day. I think it'd be a very good idea if you did. All right, I'll see him every day, okay? No, not okay. Now, where's your car? I came with them. All right, mine's right over here. Come on. Now, wait a second. I got friends inside. Friends are no friends. You were going home. Hey, now, who do you think you are? Look, I'm the lawyer trying to feed a rap for your husband, do you remember? Oh, what's that got to do with it? Now, you listen. Now, you listen. And especially a girdle. Look, Laura, believe me, I, I don't usually complain of an attractive jiggle, but just you save that jiggle for your husband to look at if and when I get him out of jail. Now, come on, now, let's go. I'm sorry, I really am. I wouldn't hurt Manny's chances for anything. Come on, come on. Is this about where Barney knocked you down? Yeah, right over here. Over there is the opening in the fence where Muffy was running back and forth with a flashlight. Where's your trailer? Up there on the hill. This is my favorite place. Sometimes when Manny was sleeping, I'd come out here and just sit. I had to get out of that trailer. I couldn't stand being cooped up all the time. I'm... I'm lonely, Paul. I'm awful lonely. I wouldn't have gone to that roadhouse if it weren't for that, you know? Maybe you were getting in some good practice being lonely. You mean you think maybe Manny won't get off? That'll be up to the jury, and you can never tell about them. If he didn't, it'd be one way to end it. No, I, I don't mean that. I, I may think it sometimes, but I don't really want it. You want to come in, Paul? You can if you want to, you know. No, thank you, Laura. I'm sorry I had to spoil your fun over at that place. I... Good night, Laura. Good night. So the pre-trial starts about an hour into the film, and court procedure-wise, this is one of the best films ever. Uh, you get the initial plea, the jury selection, the sidebar debates, and the judge, uh, the judge's chambers. And so if you've ever been on a jury, like, all this happens. And so uh, it's it's never, you know, the <laughs> the hysterics like you always see in, in films. But that's why this movie is good. Like, you get some of that once the trial goes. But for the most part, this is procedure-wise 
Very interesting. So finally, the district attorney brings in George C. Scott, who is a heavy hitter from Lansing, Michigan, because they feel this is a high-profile case. All right, so we get into the trial. And so I'm always amused when lawyers ask questions they know will be objected to. And even if it's stricken from the record and the jury isn't supposed to use it in their decision, it's still out there because the human nature can't merely shut this out. A skilled lawyer may use this from time to time to simply plant seeds in the jury's minds. However, if it's overused, a judge may punish the lawyer for this abuse, and a skilled lawyer can skillfully kind of straddle this line. The thing about Stewart is he's always likable. He has a great sense of humor. You know, his, his manner would be very important for the jury. So when I was on a case, it was a personal injury case, and I was on the jury, and the defense who was was defending this restaurant where this uh, older gentleman had fallen and uh, and hurt himself well as it turns out that the the gentleman had fallen on a lot of other places so it had really nothing to do with the negligence of the restaurant it had to do with this with this unfortunately older gentleman who had, had a tough time walking so was it the responsibility of the restaurant for someone who constantly falls well the main problem with the attorney who was suing for the older gentleman is he simply was outmatched and he wasn't that likable whereas the defense attorney was very likable and very professional and you almost were rooting for him and so there is a human nature where even though right or wrong, you you have to kind of, if a lawyer gets you on his side, you'll kind of go with him. And even though it may not be technically correct, it does matter. And, and that's why I think Stewart is perfect as this role. And there's a great back and forth between Stewart and Scott. And Scott simply just isn't that likable. Even though he's very skilled, he's not likable. Photograph pertaining to the case would be relevant. The point is good, Mr. Beagler. Continue. What were these other photographs of, Mr. Burke? Lieutenant Mannion's wife. You mean these photographs showed how she looked that night after Barney Quill was killed? Yes. Your Honor, how she looked is irrelevant. No evidence has been introduced to connect Mrs. Mannion's appearance to a charge of murder. Sustained. Well, I'm sorry, Your Honor. I just wanted to make sure the prosecution wasn't withholding evidence. Now look here. I protest to the defense attorney's persistent attacks on the, the motives of the prosecution. The jury will disregard the remark made by the attorney for the defense. There is no reason to believe that the prosecution has not acted in good faith. No, my apologies to the prosecution and to the court. But, Your Honor, as long as protests are being made, I'd like to make a protest myself. Now, I'm perfectly willing to take on these two legal giants any time, any place. But in all fairness, it ought to be one at a time. I don't want these two fellas pitching knuckleballs at me at the same time. It seems to me you're batting close to a thousand, Mr. Beagler. But your point is well taken. Whichever attorney opens with the witness, he alone shall continue with that witness until the witness is excused. Thank you, Your Honor. No more questions. No questions. There's a hilarious sidebar about panties and what to call them. you got to think, this is 1959, so they're not calling them undergarments. They're calling them panties. What exactly was the undergarment just referred to? Panties, Your Honor. Do you expect this subject to come up again? Yes, sir. There's a certain light connotation attached to the word panties. Can we find another name for them? I never heard my wife call them anything else. Mr. Bigler? Oh, I'm a bachelor, Your Honor. That's a great help. Mr. Dancer? I was overseas during the war, Your Honor. I, I learned a French word. I'm afraid that might be slightly suggestive. Most French words are. 
All right, gentlemen. Back to your places. For the benefit of the jury, but more especially for the spectators, the undergarment referred to in the testimony was, to be exact, Mrs. Mannion's panties. <laughs> I wanted you to get your snickering over and done with. This pair of panties will be mentioned again in the course of this trial. And when it happens, there will not be one laugh, one snicker, one giggle, or even one smirk in my courtroom. There isn't anything comic about a pair of panties which figure in the violent death of one man and the possible incarceration of another. Proceed, Mr. Bigler. Uh, so we find out later that the polygraph is not admissible in court and it's never been proven to be accurate. So it's great that you're willing to take a polygraph test. Doesn't mean it, it, didn't, it doesn't actually have to hold up in court. So it, it's a nice little tool for the police, but when it comes to trial, not going to be used. All right, Howard McNear plays Mr. Uh, plays Doctor Dom Pierre. Uh, he was actually Floyd the Barber in Andy Griffith, and he's the one that performed the exam on Laura. Now, there's an interesting scene where he claims that it's impossible for a matured married woman to tell if they've been raped. And frankly, that's well, this is back in 1959. DNA evidence isn't used at the time, so uh, interesting to hear that. Laura's appearance does come into play, and that's often a tactic as a rapist defense. You know, was she enticing? You know, George C. Scott was trying to, trying to do that. Also, uh, it, she, you know, her getting a divorce if she claims to be Catholic, that's brought up a lot back then. Well, had you ever gone to the Thunder Bay Inn or elsewhere in Thunder Bay alone at night? Yes, sometimes. Did your husband know you were going? Not always. He, he goes to sleep early and... and... Sometimes I'm restless. Where did you go on these occasions? Oh, I'd take a walk by the lake or went to the bingo place. Maybe to the inn. You ever go to meet another man? No, I didn't. I never did that. You mean to say, Mrs. Mannion, a lovely woman like yourself, attractive to men, lonely, restless, that you never once... Objection, Your Honor. Witnesses answered the question about other men. Counsel's now making a veiled suggestion to the jury. I withdraw the question. Uh, now, Mrs. Mannion, on these occasional excursions into the night, did you always go and return home alone? Of course. But Mrs. Mannion, you testified that the reason you got into Barney Quill's car was because you were afraid to go home alone. Why were you so frightened on this particular night? I said that it was because he, he told me bears had been seen around. Was this the first time you'd heard that bears came around Thunder Bay to pick up scraps? No. Had you seen the bears before? Yes. Oh, this was just the first time you were afraid of them. No, I was always afraid of them. Oh, this was just the first time you were enough afraid to allow a, a man to take you home from one of your evening prowls. Objection. Use the word prowls meant to mislead the jury. Sustained. I apologize, Mrs. Mannion. <clears throat> I didn't mean to imply that you were a huntress. Was this the first time that you were enough afraid to allow a man to take you home from one of your evening walks? Well, it... It wasn't just that, it was... Oh, come now, Mrs. Manning, you should be able to answer that straight off. That's a simple enough question. Your Honor, how can the witness answer straight off and the counsel keeps interrupting the answer? The witness seemed a little slow to me, Mr. Beagler. However, let her complete her answers before you interrupt. Of course, Your Honor. In any case, Mr. Beagler's objection has given Mrs. Manning sufficient time to think of an answer to my question. You've thought of one, haven't you, Mrs. Manning? What I was going to say was that... I didn't want to offend Mr. Quill by making him think that I was afraid of him or didn't like him. He'd been very pleasant to my husband and me when we'd been in his bar. 
That's very good, Mr. Mannion. Very good indeed. A good lawyer never asks a question they don't always know the answer to, and Scott gets nailed on this. Uh, Orson Bean plays the army shrink. There's an expert conflict. That actually happened in that same trial I was telling you about. So the person who was suing the plaintiff came in to say that the brick that was laid at the restaurant was not properly done. And so they brought in a general contractor as their expert. And he's giving all these, you know, supposed facts. Well, as it turned out, he wasn't an expert about bricklaying. So just because you're a general contractor doesn't make you an expert in everything. So the defense came on and said they actually had an actual expert in bricklaying. And he completely picked apart the general contractor's uh, testimony. And we that just made the 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 plaintiffs even that more unreliable. And so that's a, that's another key. You can have experts, but is your expert truly an expert? That always comes into play. There's a bunch of interesting terms used um, back then, like the term bitch was used during the trial, which you didn't hear that much. And there were other terms like contraceptive or panties, penetration, rape, slut, sperm. And these were all considered risque at the time. Now you hear them, it's like nothing. But back then, 1959, again, this was controversial. But again, it's all done very technically, very respectfully, and, and I think that's why this film does so well. What's really interesting about this film is most court most court movies, most trial movies, there's it all comes down to the final closing arguments. Well, the great thing about this movie is it doesn't even need it. There are no closing arguments shown in this movie, which is really interesting. Most courtroom movies, the whole film builds up to that. It's sort of like in a sports movie, the big game. So in this way, the film is kind of like Bull Durham, meaning the reason Bull Durham is so good is because it's a typical season of baseball, the day in and day out. This is how anatomy of a murder treats a trial. Sure, there are theatrics throughout the trial, but that doesn't uh, but that doesn't rest simply on the closing arguments like every other you know, courtroom movie. And I thought it was brilliant to simply ignore it because it really didn't have to do with the closing trial. It had to do with the facts. And there's a great ending that has absolutely nothing to do with the trial. And I'm not going to give it away because you should see the movie. I think it's a terrific movie. All right. There are all sorts of fun facts. So all of the film was shot in Michigan where the story was supposed to take place. And that doesn't happen often in film any longer because of the cost of shooting. The film was nom- nominated for many Academy Awards, but did not win. So the nominations include Best Lead Actor for James Stewart. That was his last nomination of his career. Arthur O'Connell was uh, nominated for Best Actor in a Supporting Role. George C. Scott was also nominated for Best Supporting Actor, which was the first nomination of his career. Sam Levitt was uh, nominated for Best Cinematography in Black and White. Louis Loafer was nominated for Best Film Editing. Otto Preminger was nominated for Best Picture. And Wendell Mays was nominated for Best Writing a Screenplay based on material from another medium because, of course, it was based on a book. Otto Preminger actually sued Columbia Pictures and its TV subsidiary Screen Gems when it sold this film in a package of 60 films to television for $10 million. So in New York, ABC interrupted the 160-minute film 13 times with 36 commercials. Preminger was furious that his film was being mutilated and took them to court in a highly publicized case, and he lost. (laughs) James Stewart's father was so offended by the film that he deemed it a dirty picture, and then he took out an ad in his local paper saying not to see it. (laughs) That's crazy. 
The film was banned in Chicago because of a heavy Catholic influence in the city at the time. Again, those words I was telling you about, big deal back in 1959. How times have changed. And of course, the, the car that Jimmy Stewart is driving is a 1949 Pontiac Silver Street convertible. All right, again, we've done a movie, we've done a podcast on favorite movies, courtroom movies, and so this is definitely on there. So if you haven't seen this movie, again, don't let the running time scare you off. This is brilliant. Definitely check it out. And again, until next week, this is Brian signing off. Why wouldn't I be legally justified in killing the man who raped my wife? Don't try and lie, don't try and conceal anything, or you get skinned alive. Objection! Objection! Cat's out of the bag, it's fair game for me to chase it. How can a jury disregard what it's already heard? You do they solemnly swear on a testimony. I thought we dropped the formalities a long time ago. I think maybe we'd better pick them up again. You're a funny kind of a lawyer. He said when he got out, the first thing he was gonna do was to kick that bitch from here to kingdom come. We also looked for a certain undergarment of Mrs. Mannion. What exactly was the undergarment just referred to? Panties, Your Honor. You always wear panties? No. The burden is on the defense to prove temporary insanity at the time of the shooting. I wasn't thinking about anything too clearly. Did you mean that at the time of the shooting, he could have known the difference between right and wrong? I'm not saying he was legally insane. It's impossible to tell. If a mature married woman has been raped, what was your reason for swearing? So he believed me? Why shouldn't he believe you? Objection! Didn't you swear to a lie to keep him from hitting you again? No! No, I didn't! I did not! Hey, this is Brian Davis, and you might know me from the Damn Good Movie Memories podcast. And now, get ready for the Bad Beat Show on ThatMetalStation.com. From 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. Eastern every Wednesday night. I'm going to play some kick-ass hard rock inspired by the blues. Because after all, the foundation of all things rock and metal is, of course, the blues. So join me every Wednesday night for the bad beat. Because even when you lose, you still win. We are officially on Spotify now, so if you don't use iTunes, if you don't use the Podbean app, you can go to Spotify and get all of our past episodes. You can stream it on there, so if you're a Spotify user, you can go find Damn Good Movie Memories. <laughs> I can't even say my own podcast. Damn Good Movie Memories. Yes, I know what I'm talking about. I'm the host, right? Okay, so go to Spotify, look for Damn Good Movie Memories. You can stream all of that stuff. And yeah, so if you don't want to use iTunes, you don't want to use Podbean, you can use Spotify as well. All right, before we sign off, we do have t-shirts are available for sale. All you have to do is go to tpublic, that's T-E-E-P-U-B-L-I-C.com, and you can get your very own Damn Good Movie Memories t-shirt. You can get all sizes, any gender, you can get whatever you want just at the tip of your fingers. So just go to tpublic.com, look up Damn Good Movie Memories, and you can get your very own t-shirt. If you enjoy this podcast and are an iTunes user, please do the show a favor and head on over to the official iTunes page for damn good movie memories. Be sure to leave a rating and a review. This will allow the show to appear higher in the algorithm and spread the joy of this podcast to the masses. If you are not an iTunes user, you can still listen and subscribe on Podbean. 
at damngoodmoviememories.podbean.com. Be sure to like us on Facebook under our Damn Good Movie Memories page. You can also listen to a limited number of episodes on YouTube. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode and be sure to tune in next week for an all new episode of Damn Good Movie Memories. I am Dr. Fuck. And I'm the actual alcoholic. And we are part of the Rock and Metal Combat Podcast. We are the Rock and Metal Combat Podcast. That's right. And the way you can check us out is we are on iTunes and also Podbean. And we forgot a review recently. I got this review right here. It says right here, it says, Rock and Metal Combat Podcast is the greatest podcast in the world. And it's my number one podcast signed by Science. Now, and then Science also says... Science! Science also said, My second favorite podcast is It Doesn't Matter, The Rest Suck. Rock and Metal Combat Podcast on iTunes and Poppy. Check it out. Science!